And so what we'd like to do is that same process that's occurring in intensive care units, move that out into the home so that your home now becomes basically a nurse that's watching you, keeping an eye on your health and hopefully anticipating problems long before they become a, a serious thing. Welcome to episode 352 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. I'm Lisa Gonzalez. While Chris was at the 2019 Broadband Community Summit in Austin, Texas, he met up with Dr. Robert Wack from Westminster, Maryland. As a healthcare professional, Dr. Wack has a special interest in how a broadband network can help deliver better care, and in this interview, he and Christopher discuss some of the interesting programs he's been working on. From broadband for home monitoring to assisting in triage to reducing costs, it's obvious that connectivity is a tool that we can't afford not to develop in the battle for better health care. Now here's Dr. Robert Wack and Christopher talking about health care and broadband. Welcome to another episode of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. I'm Chris Mitchell with the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. And I'm in Austin, Texas for the Broadband Community Summit, which is uh, an event that I do interviews at every year. Um, actually, I think three years now, maybe this is the fourth, uh, I've done an interview with Robert Wack, City Council President of Westminster, Maryland. Welcome back. Thanks, Chris. So you're a very entertaining person to have on um, for a variety <laughs> of reasons, just a very eclectic thinker and whatnot. Yesterday, you gave a really interesting presentation about healthcare and telemedicine. And so we're going to focus on that. Um, but first of all, let me just ask you, how are things going with uh, your, your network, the public-private partnership with Ting? It's going extremely well. We are uh, pretty much on schedule, um, under budget, and um, preparing to wrap up uh, the main construction of the backbone and signing up customers. Um, from a financial performance perspective, we're right on track. We're, we're hitting our customer acquisition goals on schedule, well, actually ahead of schedule. Our, our target was 20% within a year of lighting up each phase, and we're, uh, we meaning mostly Ting, uh, right. <laughs> are, are, are beating that goal. Uh, they have beat it for every phase that we've lit. The next step is, uh, internally for Westminster, our goal is 40% at five years. Ting's goal is 50% at five years, and we're on track. They're, they're, so we're still... A long way to go, ramping up subscriber acquisition, um, but uh, the way we put the project together, the way we modeled it was all, you know, for very long-term, slow ramp up, um, and we're doing that. Aside from um, being the city council president, who really, I think, had the vision for this and was a driving force for it, uh, you're an author, which I always like to bring up and you always giggle about, um, but you're also a doctor. And so you have some hands-on experience. And you're paying close attention to to this. And Maryland is a really fascinating state um, for a variety of reasons. And then we have the Affordable Care Act, which uh, is Obamacare, which has changed some incentives for hospitals. So, so give me a sense of of maybe setting a broad stage, just like you did yesterday on the session we didn't record. <laughs> um, why you know what's what's the stage for broadband in healthcare right now? Well, let's just start like yesterday with a very broad picture of healthcare, And, you know, this is a, a very oversimplified generalization, and it's somewhat pessimistic. And I'm sure people might take issue with one piece of it or another. But but the general... No, if there's one thing Americans can agree on is health care. I'm pretty sure about that. So our, our health care system is broken and, and is failing, unfortunately, um, even despite recent progress with, for example, the Affordable Care Act. The Affordable Care Act was 
a great step in the right direction, but it, it was not sufficient to fix the many problems that our healthcare system has. And those are basically boiled down to three main areas. One, we spend way too much on healthcare. Two, we do not get the same results from our healthcare system that other countries do. So we, we deliver healthcare very inefficiently. Um, and three, there are still massive, terrible um, inequities in our healthcare system. There are p- parts of the country that don't have access to the same levels of healthcare that other parts of our country have. Mm-hmm. And there are certainly major socioeconomic discrepancies between the quality of healthcare and you know, racial uh, discrepancies as well. So there's huge problems. So that's the, the, the big picture, is, mm-hmm. is our healthcare system s- struggling and um, not heading in the right direction. There are pockets of um, hope and, and things that, are, that are, seem to be going well, but there are many, many more changes that need to be, happen. So in that context, uh, in the state of Maryland, we have participated uh, for many years as part of a, a pilot project from the CMS, as the Center of Medicare and Medicaid and Medicare Services, uh, that uh, places authority for setting rates for healthcare reimbursement at the state level. So, unlike many other states, the the state of Maryland says what reimbursement rates are going to be for a hospital and that effectively controls how much a hospital can make in a, in a given year. And what that does is they've created the mechanism for capping hospital expenditures in any mm-hmm. given year. And then that in turn flips the incentives for how hospitals deliver care. So instead of in the past or what most of the rest of the country has, where there's this incentive to drive volume, more surgeries, fill the beds, build a bigger hospital... It's the exact opposite. Now it's keep people healthy, do fewer surgeries, keep people out of the hospital. So hospitals actually in this situation, they have a real incentive to spend on things that other hospitals don't have an incentive to spend on. Correct. Absolutely. So now there's much bigger focus on community health, uh, preventative health, wellness programs, um, many new things. Things that we've always talked about, mm-hmm. but there just weren't the financial incentives there. So that's that's a big, big change. So in that context now, programs that look at, for example, using technology to provide preventative health care or chronic disease management in the home as opposed to in the hospital now become much, much more interesting. And so that's the, the, the area where I've started to really do some interesting things. Um, my rudimentary understanding of healthcare was was sort of really broadened. I think when I when I understood that there are a very few number of diseases that massively drive the costs of healthcare up. I mean, diabetes and and uh, dementia, like sort of oh, schizophrenia. And so, getting a sense of how dealing with with a few chronic diseases, if you can get those managed, you can dramatically change healthcare expenditures. So, so tell me a little bit about how that may play into. Um, what you're talking about here, we're in broadband. So uh, I took a full-time job recently with a um, home care agency, or I'm, I'm over the medical director for a home care agency, and uh, they have a fascinating pilot program uh, that they're calling the Chronic Care Management Program, and uh, that's generating some really um, impressive results in terms of keeping costs down and keeping people out of the hospital. Um, they've just completed an analysis of a two-year pilot program, enrolled. Um, there have been about 200 patients came through the program, but there were 120 that were part of the analysis. 
and they did a, a pre-intervention uh, assessment of healthcare utilization, emergency room visits and readmissions, and then a then they were enrolled in the program, and then they looked at the following 12 months, and again looked at readmissions and, and emergency room visits. And what, with the intervention of using um, this remote patient monitoring technology, which I'll ex explain a little bit more detail, uh, they were able to reduce emergency room visits by over 50 percent and hospital readmissions by over by 80 percent, which resulted in. $2.1 million in uh, avoided costs from hospital utilization. Over, now remind me of the time scale, over one year, over two years? Uh, uh, well, the one year of the intervention. So, okay. so they tracked the data over two years before and after. And so during that 12 months, $2.1 million of savings. And in, in, in this is just in the community of Westminster? I no, mean, no, actually this is in Frederick, Maryland. Oh, Frederick, and, okay. And it was, but it was just those 120 patients. Mm -hmm. So those 120 patients accounted for $2.1 million worth of healthcare savings. So, mm -hmm. so imagine the, the impact it could have if it was used more broadly. So we're looking at aggressively expanding that program. Um, but the key thing there is the technology is actually pretty simple. And um, the technology is not what generates the savings. What generates the savings is the higher level of patient interaction and um, communication that the technology enables, which is usually the case with technology. The technology is not necessarily the solution. This technology is an enabler of a better solution. And right. It's, it's how we use it, right? Correct. Yeah. yeah. So the, what this is, is these are little, um, basically an, like an iPad, a tablet that's armored so that if they drop it or, you know, whatever, leave it out, it's, it's not going to... Mm -hmm. Uh, fail and uh, it has a little SIM card in it that's connected to a cellular plan to transmit the data. The patients are taught how to use a, 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 a Bluetooth-enabled blood pressure cuff, a Bluetooth-enabled scale, and a Bluetooth-enabled pulse oximeter, which checks pulse rate and oxygen level. And the, those three things for certain kinds of patients, for example, patients with congestive heart failure, patients with chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, are enough to get a general sense of how a patient is doing in the home. But the key is daily check-ins with a nurse who they have a relationship with, and then the ability for that nurse to sort of intervene very, very early if they start seeing any changes that either they see in the vital signs that they are remotely monitoring or in what the patient reports through their, their check-ins. And that's what's making the difference is that they can talk patients through minor changes in their lifestyle or their medications before they even think about going to the emergency room and that's having this major impact in their hospital utilization so it's a huge step forward with actually a fairly minor technological fix well are these these daily check-ins are they uh, video check-ins or sometimes it's a phone call sometimes it's a video check-in and so the the tablet is has the capability of doing a simple, you know, mm -hmm. Skype-like video chat, but it's mostly just again for that mm -hmm. personal touch. Uh, the quality of the video is not so great that they're doing any sort of assessment because of the video. That's right. a whole other thing which we can talk about in the other project we're working on. Right. Well, we'll get to that in a second. I think you know one of the things that I might hear from someone who is skeptical of the need for better um, fiber networks throughout the nation would be, "Aha." The 4G networks are great and, you know, problem solved. Yeah. So, no, problem not <laughs> solved. 
So, for example, uh, cellular networks become congested. Cellular networks occasionally go down. Uh, so, yes, they're good. And, yes, in this case, it works. But if you're talking about scaling, um, well, well, let's just look at the expense. So, for this particular service, that cellular connection is 56 bucks a month. And that's, oh, okay. yeah, there's that's a, a lot. That's yeah. a real lot. Right. And it really impairs the scalability of the of the program in terms of the financials of it mm -hmm. because there's a f significant labor cost as you can imagine with the nursing service but that's where the value is mm -hmm. this particular service although effective and and certainly demonstrating some results is going to be tough to scale because of that communications expense. Yeah, I mean, just back of the envelope, I'm thinking that's, you know, the community, the monthly communication cost just for the subscription on the 4G is probably on the order of seventy to $90,000 for, for a year across 120 patients. Yeah, right. That's quick math. Well, I was doing it for a while while you were talking. <laughs> And, uh, and someone might write in to say, no, you're off by an order of magnitude, yeah, which happens to me sometimes. <laughs> yeah, no. So it's, yeah, it's non-trivial expense. Mm -hmm. And uh, it, it really, that, so that's where, boom, right off the top, if mm -hmm. you had cheap, ubiquitous uh, broadband, then that, that part of it goes away and the and solution becomes more scalable. And in, and in a place like Maryland, given the incentives, it wouldn't be unreasonable for a hospital to say, um, okay, you have a home connection, maybe we can give you a coupon or we can do something in which the hospital would pay some portion of the cost of that home connection yep. to yep. drive the cost and, down. And, well, there's also a, a, a copay. So there's, there are um, Medicare codes now to bill for this sort of thing, which also improves the economics of it. But those codes require a copay, and some of our patients can't even afford the copay. Mm -hmm. Uh, so we have to figure that out. We got to figure out the, how to manage the, the the economics of this. Clearly, the intervention works. Clearly, that higher level of daily communication and monitoring of that data has a major impact on healthcare utilization. Now, how do we how do we make it scale? How do mm -hmm. we how do we manage the economics of that in a way that makes it so that we can use it more broadly. One of the things you mentioned yesterday is that, I mean, we were talking about this Maryland-specific thing, but this is relevant for hospitals all across the nation because of the Affordable Care Act um, has very high penalties for hospitals that are readmitting people for the same problem over a period of a certain, I think it's within a right. month or something, right? Right. And, and future iterations of, of health care reform, and it, it's going to happen. It mm -hmm. has to happen. Our, as I said in the beginning, our, our system is failing, and um, at some point, the political tides will shift and we will have major health care reform. It might be after there's some series of catastrophes, you mm -hmm. know, but either way, it's going to happen. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the things that will need to happen is what's going on in Maryland, where you flip the incentives and make it so that people are focusing more on preventative care and wellness and community-based health care, not hospital-based health care. Tell us about the um, a perfect case in example. You had a specific person who had a challenge of anxiety. She had anxiety and some heart problems mm -hmm. uh, that were real, legitimate heart problems. But she also had anxiety. And one of the things that we discovered is that uh, she was afraid of the dark. And as uh, at sunset, or shortly after sunset, her anxiety would mount. She would start feeling her heart beating rapidly, and she would start thinking she was having an exacerbation of her underlying heart issue. So in the past, she would call 911, and then the EMS folks would get there. They'd check her heart rate, and sure enough, it was elevated, and put her in the ambulance and bring her to the ER. And she'd get a big workup, and turns out, oh, it really wasn't her heart. It was just... 
And so with this remote patient monitoring now, she now has a way to the nurses will see her heart rate going up. Mm -hmm. They may call her first before or she can call them. And then they have a conversation and they kind of do that initial assessment that would happen at the emergency room and avoid the 911 call, avoid the unnecessary ER visit and keep her happy and keep her in her home. And uh, is a perfect uh, anecdote about how this higher level of communication really makes an impact on keeping people happier and in their home. If you didn't have those tools, it would be harder to have that personal relationship because it is the personal relationship that matters. But the the nurse has to have access to some of the diagnostics of the body. Right. Yeah, exactly. Data she can trust. Mm -hmm. So if let's say they didn't have the remote patient monitoring, but they did have the communication, the patient calls or they they have a conversation and she said, well, what's your heart rate? Well, you don't know that the patient (laughs) really knows how to check their own heart rate, Mm -hmm. but she's got objective data that says, oh, her heart rate's, you know, 120. And that's a real piece of information. Mm -hmm. So yes, it's the combination of the data and the communication and the relationship that that makes the difference. So what's the other program that you alluded to? Yes, we, uh, I think we talked about magic before, didn't yes, we? Yes. Yeah, so the mid Atlantic, come on. Oh, no, I'm, I'm just stuck on the G gigabit, 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 innovation, innovation, collaboratory. Yeah, I was going to say center, but that's the wrong yeah, word. Collaboratory is a cool made up <laughs> word that, uh, I picked up from a, a conference one time. Uh, some, they were, uh, Research scientists were talking about their mm-hmm. collaboratory, and yeah. I was like, oh, I like that. Yeah. So, uh, hey, yeah. Shakespeare got to make up words you can too. Exactly. Um, so, Magic is a nonprofit in Westminster that's uh, whose mission is to realize the economic development potential of our fiber network, and we have a, a number of programs and projects to do that. Um, a lot of it's around workforce development, working with students, developing tech skills. But another one is our Healthy Smart Home Project. And in that, we are using sensor technology and data collection to improve healthcare outcomes for um, the six uh, residents in those two homes who are clients of another nonprofit that delivers residential services to adults with intellectual disabilities. These folks also have lots of medical problems and also go to the ER a lot. Right. I dated a woman who uh, provided care at one of those facilities. And, yep. Um, and I, one of the just one of the challenges is having people overnight, I mean, yes. frankly, because yep. it's a real it's hard for um, you're, these people. These businesses usually don't have thick margins. Nope. And trying to figure out how to have that all night coverage is challenging. Yes. And it's very labor intensive, as you can mm-hmm. imagine. And so any little deviation from the routine has a major impact on their staffing and their expenses. And so if a client has to go to the emergency room and then, or has to stay in the hospital overnight, it's, it really blows up their staffing. Right. So these folks um, are frequent uh, utilizers of emergency room visits and are often admitted to the hospital. And um, the nonprofit that we're working with has kind of tasked us to find a way to decrease that from happening. So we started putting in technology similar to what, what's being used in this other program. But now uh, we have to figure out a way to um, not only generate the data, but also create remote viewing capabilities that allow a much more detailed assessment and triage to happen in the home. And that's going to end up being uh, high resolution video to, to allow the same sort of thing that's happening in the other program 
but at a, at a much higher level of fidelity and um, scope. So let me lay out a scenario for you. Um, the way the current healthcare services are provided for the clients is uh, if something happens with a client, they fall and hurt themselves or they develop a fever or a cough, the staff calls a triage service that's contracted and these people are, are remote, but it's just a phone call mm -hmm. and they have a conversation about it. And unfortunately, because of the lack of information and the lack of, of transparency into the situation, the, the result of that conversation is more often than not the advice to go to the emergency room, which really doesn't help anybody. Because then once they're in the emergency room, somebody can actually lay eyes on them and say, oh, this isn't a big deal. And now they've spent four, six, eight hours in the emergency room, really basically for nothing. So what we're going to do is, in addition to collecting the data, we're going to put in uh, 4K cameras um, and then have that connected to the emergency room and give that view into the, the house so that those sorts of um, assessments can be done by a healthcare provider. It might not mm -hmm. be a physician. It might be a PA or a nurse practitioner. But to give a much higher level of comfort for making a decision not to escalate mm -hmm. the care. Sure. Because that's what you need. You need that level of trust. You mm -hmm. need that level of quantity and quality of data to include visual data about what's really going on in the home so that a healthcare provider can say with confidence, this is okay. You don't need to come to the emergency room. This will keep until tomorrow or this doesn't really need anything. Mm -hmm. Everybody can relax. You can't do that over the phone or you, it's hard to do over the phone absent a long-standing relationship. And the reality is staff turnover, you know, that, so the, so the nonprofit, their staff turns over and at the nursing agency that's doing the triage, they right. have staff turnover. So it's more likely than not that the people on either side of the conversation don't know each other and may not know the client very well. Mm -hmm. And so in that vacuum, that information vacuum, it's impossible to have any kind of trust about really how reliable is the information I'm getting and I'm not going to take a chance on making the wrong decision because mm -hmm. I don't trust the information. So how do you change that? You build that trust. You give a better view into the house and that's going to be through video and correlating that with data, vital signs data mm -hmm. and other data that we're collecting, for example, about diet and about daily activities and behavior patterns that we have the we are accumulating a substantial database of past behaviors that the, the staff log in through a software platform that now a clinician, they can say, oh, they threw a tantrum and hurt themselves, but this is their usual thing. Well, how does the clinician know that? Well, now we can show them, look, here's the pattern of behaviors right. over the last right. two years. And yes, after a holiday, behaviors deteriorate and, or after a big meal of candy or whatever, right. behaviors right. deteriorate, you know? So, um, just generally gives more information and a better view into the situation so that people can make better decisions. Is there a liability angle to this in terms of preserving the video for, I mean, because liability is a major issue Absolutely. around healthcare. Absolutely. And not as much on the clinician side, like mm -hmm. in the context of an emergency room visit, but that's certainly a piece of it. Right. Because actually, I mean, it just seems odd to me. I'm just, I was, as you're thinking, as I was thinking about this, if they were in your office, it feels like it would be an affront to privacy to record that. But the nature of a video chat is that it is recorded. 
anyway. And so one could preserve it so that if there were a question later, did the did the clinician make the right call? Sure. One would be able to evaluate it and say, this is the evidence I was presented with. And, a, and a, you know, a competent person in my position would have made that decision. That's exactly right. That's a really, really good point that this will be a challenge for implementing this kind of technology across the whole healthcare system because everybody's going to have to get used to this new thing that now there are other ways to document the 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 uh, interaction that occurred mm-hmm. and that's the future and mm-hmm. but you know the the doctors going to have to get used to it the families going to have to get used to it the lawyers will have to get used to it it will probably eliminate some spurious sort of lawsuits about stuff but when it does happen there will be that evidence right. and you know but the goal is everybody gets good care and everybody does the right thing so that's not necessarily a bad thing right that's why we keep a medical record is to document the care that was given so this is just an extension of that so you told a story about johnny yesterday that i enjoyed about the uh the 2 a.m phone call sure which my wife and i had to make an emergency room on a 104 um if you were, i think if we had talked to you then you would have said if, you got to come in if if, <laughs> if only you had called me chris right, maybe right. we could have avoided that visit no um so you know as a pediatrician uh sometimes uh, parents become worried about situations that may or may not warrant that much anxiety. And when that phone call happens, and it's usually in the middle of the night, to the doctor's, you know, the on-call doctor or the on-call nursing service, same problem. They can't see your child. They only hear the anxiety in your voice mm-hmm. and then the the the, the scant uh, details of, you know, what you're relating. Fever of 104, mm-hmm. you know, etc. So, Usually the answer to that is go to the emergency room, even though most times that's probably not necessary. Right. Um, and so a high resolution video that's that's you know reliable and secure and um, always re- there if you need it um, would help give that reassurance that even with the 104 fever, Johnny's OK because you can see him running around in the background going, mm-hmm. I want a juice box. I want a juice box. Right. Sometimes people, you know, sort of fixate on one piece of data, but there are many other pieces of data that really paint a different picture. And an experienced clinician could see that, yes, Johnny has 104 fever, but he's doing okay. Right. You know, and so (laughs) dose of Motrin and everybody go back to bed. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I think it's more broadly applicable. But again, people are going to have to get used to the presence of some kind of camera technology in their home and that that occasional intrusion into their privacy, uh, but it could really solve a lot of problems. Are there high-speed broadband applications that aren't video? Um, I mean, so much of this is about, I mean, video that allows you to use the judgment that you've spent decades honing, but are there other things in terms of sensors that just would require, you know, high capacity? Uh, Somebody yesterday asked me after the the talk about um, thermal imaging. You know, mm-hmm. and I thought, I've never thought of that. Or what did he, he called it? Something else. Um, Hyperspectrum. Hi- yeah. Yeah. I'll Hyperspectral see. imaging or yeah. something. Yeah. yeah. And I thought. He was a guest last week. Yeah. <laughs> that's a really great question uh, because what it does is it opens the door to other sensory modalities mm-hmm. that could be used diagnostically. I think the reality today is that if you thermally imaged somebody with a fever, uh, the clinician wouldn't know what to do with that information because it's not <laughs> right. something, it's not part of our standard data set, you know. Mm. We know what temperatures mean. We know what heart rates mean. We know what, 
you know, uh, respiratory rates mean, and then we know what they mean in the context of different disease problems. Um, so, so we know how to act on that information. We wouldn't know how to act mm -hmm. on thermal imaging, for yeah. example. But I think your point, your larger point is absolutely spot on, is that having that high capacity data connection and the ability to share that information does open the door mm -hmm. to potentially new data channels that would beneficially impact that therapeutic decision making. A few weeks back, I did an interview with David Weinberger and we talked about machine learning a bit. And it'll be fascinating as you're creating these data sets with this information that you would only have among people who are hospitalized and being able to get like that data. That's exactly as you, right. As you create these data sets of people in their homes, you know, machines may see patterns that we would not, that would predict certain um, you know, negative health outcomes. That's absolutely right. And that's actually one of the broader strategic goals of the Healthy Smart Home Project is um, that sort of machine learning is happening right now inside hospitals, uh, particularly inside intensive care units. So there are uh, algorithms now that are being applied to the data that's generated from a patient that's in an intensive care unit that are being used to assess and predict uh, or, or assess the, the probabilities of uh, deterioration over the next 6, 12, 24 hours mm -hmm. and looking at every bit of data that's generated, you know, heart rate, respiration rate, changes in those things, temperature, laboratory values, white blood count, uh, urine output, uh, oxygen levels, the whole thing. And, uh, and then also nursing assessments as well, mm -hmm. which turns out is one of the most valuable pieces of information. It's still the humans involved right. where right. The, the machines depend on the humans for that critical data input, but using that critical data input, they can look at the data in ways that humans can't mm -hmm. and then make some predictions. And so what we'd like to do is that same process that's occurring in intensive care units, move that out into the home mm -hmm. so that your home now becomes basically a nurse that's watching you, keeping an eye on your health and hopefully anticipating problems long before they become a, a, a serious thing. Sure, as long as we don't have Nurse Cratchit, we'll be set. That's exactly right. <laughs> so, of course, it raises all sorts of privacy issues. It raises all sorts of security issues, uh, data integrity issues, all of which, mm -hmm. and cost, you know. Right. So we're, we're trying to do the Healthy Smart Home Project in, a, in as cheap a way as possible. How do we pack as much capability into the home at the lowest possible price and still achieve those goals of security, reliability, stability, privacy. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things to, to come back to the beginning about, I think, is that if you do extrapolate across the United States, you could build like broadband to a lot of places that, um, that don't have it with the avoided cost of hospitals. I mean, with just a fraction of it. Oh, yeah. Because, I mean, we're looking at uh, hundreds of billions of dollars in, oh, yeah. in avoided costs, potentially. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So the, these are, I think you used a word the other day uh, about... Diggity? The, no. no. <laughs> spillovers? Sp spillovers, yeah, maybe. Right. So this is absolutely a, a spillover. You know? right. So with better, better broadband, you start having these ancillary impacts on... You know, education, healthcare, et cetera, right. which are hard to quantify, but we, in this instance, not terribly hard to quantify. This mm -hmm. in, in Maryland, we know in this instance, 
$2.1 million over 12 months, you know, that could build you some fiber. Right. Now, unfortunately, the hospitals desperately need that cost savings. <laughs> so they're probably not going to plow that into fiber. Yeah. But but the, the point still stands that. So this is just totally people who are interested in broadband could probably sign off right now because I have a the last question I want to ask you. I was just going to end the interview. But there is an interesting point, I think, that I worry about very low probability, high impact events. And as we have hospitals that are focused on reducing bed counts, are we putting ourselves in danger of the event of a horrible catastrophe? We or? already are there. We are so, there. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah. We're just we're worried about the margin there. I'm rearranging yeah. the so, deck So uh, back when H1N1 flu was out and about, mm-hmm. and there were heightened concerns about a legit influenza pandemic like 1918, where mm-hmm. the Spanish flu killed millions of people. and. So there were some in Maryland, but I think I'm pretty sure this happened nationwide as well. There were um, efforts to, you know, assess the system, see how, you know, how the system would handle something if this H1N1 really took off and and became like a a, a serious pandemic where, you know, mortality was significant. What, What they found was with multiple tabletop exercises is that, because we have squeezed all of the surge capacity out of the system in the pursuit of efficiencies and reducing costs, that the system will fail. It will mm-hmm. absolutely fail because we don't have enough ventilators. We don't have enough isolation rooms. We don't have enough capacity f- in the morgues to handle right. the, the people who die. Mm-hmm. You know, and, um, and then when you start factoring in people missing work, uh, it, it the whole system breaks down pretty quickly. Sure. So, uh, for people who want a picture of that, Stephen King's uncut version of The Stand, I think, paints a, a very clear picture of it. Or uh, there was a movie that came out um, with uh, Matt Damon, and um, it, it had uh, like a one-word name, like pandemic or something. And yeah, it was an it, outbreak, but it was something similar to yeah, that. Yeah, and it was a, actually a very uh, Gwyneth Paltrow was the was the index case. She mm-hmm. caught some virus in China when she was having an affair with somebody and brought mm-hmm. it home. To the More United likely, States. goop would cause it. Yeah. but, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it, it was actually um, you know there were some embellishments for Hollywood effect, but uh, but in terms of how it rolled out and the impacts it had, mm-hmm. they were it was actually not far from yeah. the truth and. Yeah. Um, it's going to happen. Maybe that's the crisis that gets us over the hump for trying to really reform our healthcare system. Mm-hmm. But yeah, well, I mean, the, the good news is is that as we quantify this stuff, we can make better arguments for the the ancillary benefits of broadband and why we need public investment in it, and we need to do it intelligently. Sure, sure, and get your flu shot. Absolutely, <laughs> yes. <laughs> thank you so much, Robert. All right, thank you, Chris. That was Christopher talking with Dr. Robert Weck about how broadband is assisting healthcare professionals to improve care at home and in the clinical setting. We have transcripts for this and other podcasts available at muninetworks.org slash broadbandbits. Email us at podcast at muninetworks.org with your ideas for the show. Follow Chris on Twitter. His handle is at communitynets. Follow muninetworks.org stories on Twitter. The handle is at muninetworks. Subscribe to this podcast and the other podcasts from ILSR, Building Local Power, and the Local Energy Rules Podcast. You can access them wherever you get your podcasts. You can catch the latest important research from all of our initiatives if you subscribe to our monthly newsletter at ILSR.org. While you're there, please take a moment to donate. Your support in any amount helps keep us going. 
Thank you to Arnie Hughesby for the song Warm Duck Shuffle licensed through Creative Commons. And thank you for listening to episode 352 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. <laughs>